0: Peter Cradlin, live on Sky News Australia.
1: Good evening. Welcome to the show. Great to have your company as always. A lot going on here in Australia and, of course, around the world. Here's what's coming up on the show tonight. Lismore and surrounding towns tonight remain underwater and completely isolated. I'll cross shortly to our reporter on the ground for the latest on those issues in towns. We'll cross live to the United Kingdom... And speak to the former British Army General, NATO's past Deputy Allied Commander, Sir Richard Shiroff, who predicted Russian war in Eastern Europe. What's happening on the ground in Ukraine tonight? Can civilian soldiers hold out? And most of all, is the Free West doing enough? The left-wing push to decriminalise hard, illicit drugs, it's not a frolic by a couple of outliers. It's a much more coordinated campaign and it's growing. One of my guests tonight will explain what's really happening here. Plus, as Russian forces advance in the final stages towards Kiev, the Australian government pledges missiles, ammunition and further humanitarian support to the people of Ukraine.
2: President Zelensky said, don't give me a ride, give me ammunition. And that's exactly what the Australian government has agreed to do.
1: But first, with much of southeastern Queensland and northern New South Wales on the coast inundated, with much more torrential rain tipped to move down east, as important as the issues in Ukraine are tonight, we've got tens of thousands of our own here in this country who face life and death situations stranded by floodwaters and even when rescued face days and weeks living in disaster accommodation as they try to rebuild their lives. Well, thank God for the SES, I say this all the time, and the army and all those emergency workers, and the phenomenal skill of those helicopter pilots in scenes today that look straight out of a Hollywood movie, rather than the reality across many communities as people were winched to safety. Invariably, when trouble comes, Australians pull together and there are countless stories emerging of neighbours helping neighbours and strangers rescuing strangers, as decent people do what's needed to make the best of a bad situation. Given that these parts of Australia are always flood-prone, for instance, the 2011 floods were considerably worse than these, at least so far in Brisbane, I hope there won't be too much over-excitement and chatter about climate change. As Dorothea McKellar observed over a century ago, Australia has always been a land of drought and flooding rains. There are some lessons to be learned, though, especially about managing dams to minimise floods rather than to conform to ideology. One of Australia's best investigative reporters is the Australian newspapers, Headley Thomas, and he's closely followed dam management in Queensland for the past decade. Today day he warned that Brisbane has had a lucky escape, that the current floods would have been much worse had the rain not stopped when it did, because the operators of the Wyvernhoe Dam upriver of Brisbane don't always make sufficient allowance for forecast rainfall. And Thomas is right. Back in 2011, it was a sudden release of water from the dam necessitated by the need to protect the dam's structural integrity that mightily worsened that flood. Operators hadn't released water earlier, it seems back then, because of scepticism about ultra-heavy rainfall forecasts in this era of climate change. A subsequent Royal Commission into the devastation caused found that dam operators had falsified their report to protect their professional reputations and to hide the fact that they hadn't followed the dam's operating manual and thereby triggered liability for massive damages. Wivenho Dam serves two purposes. Of course, it's a, a water storage, Brisbane's biggest, but it's also a flood mitigation dam. And with southeastern Queensland is hit with what the Premier has described as a rain bomb, it's flood mitigation that must come first. Regardless of what's happening with climate, whether overall rainfall is increasing or decreasing, or whether extreme weather events are getting more likely or less, we just have to accept that much of eastern Australia will always be prone to sustained heavy rain and make allowances for it. Indeed, in a country like ours, where there always seems to be too much water in some parts and never enough in others, the fact that we still haven't done the engineering work to capture it where there's the excess and get it to the more drought-prone areas, is something that I regard as one of our greatest failures in government, local, state and federal, bar none. All levels of government share blame here and both sides of politics too. We don't have a water scarcity problem in Australia, we have a water management problem. And surely if, if we can put a man on the moon, we should be able to fix this. Given that a brilliant engineer devised a scheme, the Bradfield Scheme, back in 1938, it stacks up even today. So let's let's have a political leader in this country brave enough to tackle the Green Lobby and make it happen. On the immediate issue of Brisbane's Wivenhoe Dam, as Headley Thomas said today, and I quote, It is reckless to have a dam operating manual which does not permit precautionary pre-flood releases of water when extreme rainfall is forecast." And he went on, and when you see it falling in northern catchments near Noosa and Gympie, he says, that should open up the floodgates. Good luck, not design, said Hedley Thomas, allowed Brisbane to avoid a substantially greater flood catastrophe. The freak weather system eased at a critical time when Wyvernhoe was almost out of flood space. Will we be lucky next time? Over the past few years, our state and federal leaders have got used to telling us how they're always following so-called expert advice. But as we often find out, always subsequently later, the experts value judgments are just as fallible as anyone else. That's why in the end, experts can and should only advise its elected leaders who have to make the decisions and take responsibility for them. It's the Premier in Queensland who needs to assure herself that she's satisfied with the way dams in her state are managed. And it's all leaders, local, state and federal, have got to get serious about our water challenge. It should be an urgent priority at the coming national election rather than some of the rubbish that now passes as nation-building policy. All right, Jonathan Lee is on standby in the Canberra newsroom with all tonight's headlines.
3: Good evening. The flood emergency in New South Wales and Queensland has seen a day of courage and disaster. Suburbs everywhere are either cleaning up or underwater and emergency crews are stretched. South of Lismore in the New South Wales Northern Rivers, a Navy helicopter was collecting families from roofs. These three airlifted one by one to safety in extraordinarily dangerous conditions.
4: Pilots uh, and the crew really need commending There's incredible bravery that we've seen on display today, and they've literally saved lives.
5: There are some people reported missing. I know there's a lot of activity on social media of people not being able to uh, contact um, loved ones or friends. Must all prepare ourselves for the possibility that lives have been lost.
3: Emergency crews later confirmed one has been, with an 80-year-old woman found inside her Lismore home. That flood is now being branded a one in 1,000 year event by the experts. Further north in Queensland, the clean-up continues with residents leaving goods outside for collection. 140 suburbs are still on flood watch, with some completely inundated, and the death toll now standing at eight.
6: Brisbane peak did not get as high as yesterday. Uh, in Ipswich, the conditions are easing. There reached a peak of 16.7 metres. Uh, we just heard from the mayor of Logan, and of course. They're now experiencing their peak at Logan. They're expecting around 200 or 300 homes to be impacted there.
3: The Defence Force busy. We've deployed around 600 personnel who are either in the field or ready to go. We've got 10 helicopters working and we've got a P-8 Poseidon aircraft doing surveillance, which will become more important as the water levels subside. With the Ukraine's capital encircled and its forces outgunned, The Australian government today has announced more than $100 million in aid. Most of that will go to buying weapons to try and help the struggling country. In his press conference, Scott Morrison delivered two messages. One for the people of Ukraine. We want to say we are with you. We are with you. The other for the invading Russian forces. But I can assure them it's coming your way. That thing is weapons. Pledging $70 million to buy, amongst other things, armour-piercing missiles to bring down Russian choppers and destroy tanks encircling Kyiv as Russia seeks to cut it off and topple the government.
2: President Zelensky said, don't give me a ride, give me ammunition. And that's exactly what the Australian government has agreed to do. We're talking ammunition, we're talking supporting them in their defence of
3: their own homeland in Ukraine. $35 million will also go in humanitarian support. This is an incredibly important point in history. And this is not a time for
4: weakness, but for strength. And those countries like Australia, like the NATO countries, like European countries need to stand together and to stare down this act of
3: aggression. It's the first time Australian taxpayers have armed a militia force since Vietnam. The government warns the funding of weapons for Ukraine is likely to make Russia more angry and dangerous. The Russian Foreign Ministry has also warned those who supply weapons to Russia's enemies to attack them are Russia's enemies too. Our government is now also leading the charge to have the superpower blocked from the next G20 in Indonesia.
2: Um, They have self-selected themselves as a pariah state and that's how they should be known all around the world and no-one should have anything to
3: do with them, frankly. Jonathan Lee, Sky News in Canberra.
1: Joining me now for his analysis of the day's events, big issues on the international stage and, of course, plenty here at home, as you've just seen, There, coming out of Canberra, Sky News political editor, Andrew Clennell. Andrew, this afternoon, the Prime Minister, alongside Defence Minister Peter Dutton, announced $70 million in lethal aid and a further $25 million in humanitarian aid for Ukraine. In a strong statement from the PM, he reaffirmed that Australia will always stand up to bullies. Now, Prime Minister Andrew was coy about how this money will be spent. I know some of the media have been critical about his uh, lack of detail, but you know, I've been there in government at this sort of point end. We're talking about weaponry. I don't think we need to telegraph to the enemy exactly what we're going to provide, subject, of course, to the usual probity rules inside government, surely.
0: Yes. Well, I mean, as journalists, we try and seek more information, so that's where that comes from. I guess the issue is... It, it sounds like these aren't missiles on Australian soil, from my chat to Andrew Hasty this afternoon. It sounds like we're buying them from another power to be, to be used. Mm-hmm. So I guess the question arises, could the other power just send them? But fair enough, we need to be showing that we're joining the fight and that is what the PM is doing.
1: Look, I would suspect we'll be buying them out of Europe or close to Europe. Uh, they are need, needed almost yesterday. Uh, so I think your, your assumptions there. Yes. I don't suspect they're coming out of our arsenal. Um, before we get into some other issues, I, I, I've got to pick up this interview you did with Christina Kinelli this afternoon. Now, this, I'll remind viewers, is the woman who'll be in charge of border security, home affairs, if Labor gets elected in a few weeks' time. I was shocked by this comment. Of course, we're led by Anthony Albanese, former Deputy Prime Minister, uh, more than 25 years in the Parliament and experience across a broad range of portfolios, including in, at Cabinet level on national security matters.
0: At cabinet now, mate, led. that
1: is a bald-faced lie. A bald-faced lie. It's, it's completely false. Albanese has never had a national security-related portfolio in Cabinet. Never. Not Defence... Not AGs, uh, not foreign affairs, not home affairs. They're, they're the National Cabinet portfolios. He might have sat in there perhaps as DPM, Deputy Prime Minister, but he's never had those national security portfolios. That's a complete fib. All he's ever been at Cabinet level is a, a Minister for Infrastructure, Minister for Regional Affairs. Does she think we don't pick this stuff up?
0: Well, what she's saying there is he was in the room, he was in the Cabinet when national security decisions are being made. But that is very different to the National Security Committee of Cabinet. So it is what the government's trying to say, and it has some weight, is that people like Morrison and Dutton and so forth just have a lot more of experience of those discussions at that high level of of those difficult decisions than the Labor team. And it is a strength for them as they come into the election. Now, Labor might say, well, you know, was Tony Abbott in the National Security Committee of Cabinet when he was Health and Employment Minister, but it doesn't really matter. It's uh, Labor's traditionally seen as weaker on national security, and so I, I see that back. She's being clever with her words. She says he has experience at national security at Cabinet level, meaning he was just sitting in Cabinet. Well, that's a bit different to being on that very important committee. Yeah, but that's everybody. Committee. Exactly.
1: I, even, the most, <laughs> even the most junior... And actually, Sports I'll, I'll pick her up on this. The dis- The decisions on national security are actually not taken in the Cabinet room. They're actually taken in the National Security Committee of Cabinet, and it's one of the only, if not the only, it's one of the only, if not the only, committee of Cabinet that does not require its decisions to be re-litigated and endorsed by the broader Cabinet. So, in fact, he has no idea about these issues, and I think she's showing... Labor's glass jaw there—the fact that she had to sort of bolster his credentials—that tells me the govern, a government's uh, attack, perhaps if not working, is certainly making Labor a bit nervous. Let's go to these and, floods And just, just quickly story on that out too. of northern New South Wales.
0: Peter, mm-hmm. just on that, he was deputy prime minister for two and a half months, so let's not forget that it wasn't well, a long period that two he and was, and was and half even, even if he was
1: NRC, sitting in there.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it, it's it's hardly worth mentioning.
1: Yeah, as said, I I am going to keep her honest. She's not always honest. Uh, These floods, we know tens of thousands of Australians are having a pretty torrid time. We saw those uh, horrible images of people stranded on their roofs last night in and around Lismore. The PM's been out there. He's offered support to Queensland and New South Wales. Uh, There's already been 80,000 claims for disaster support. We know that there's uh, $4.8 billion in a federal disaster relief fund. Apparently that's not being used now. Uh, Are we confident there's enough support out there in the community?
0: All the signs are, Peter, that Scott Morrison has learnt the lessons from the fires and he is approaching an election and that the people who are suffering from these dreadful floods will be treated a lot better than the people who were... Uh, Involved in in those bushfire tragedies. So, you know the problem a lot of the time is going to be under insurance or or that the insurers don't cover things. So then you have to think carefully about how taxpayer money should be spent. But nevertheless, I think you have to be quite generous to people who find themselves in these situations. And I know the Mm. Prime Minister's told the New South Wales Premier whatever support is required will be forthcoming from the federal government. So I think we'll see that. Uh, But, yes, I mean, that $4 billion, well, it has to go to something. I mean, even if it's just flood and fire mitigation, let's do something with it, because obviously Mm. these events are becoming more common. But the other difference between this and the Black Summer, it seems to me, is the speed with which they got defence in there. And you saw those pictures. You saw the brave and important work they are doing saving lives and doing doing so in Mm. a way that that the SES, which is a volunteer organisation, cannot do and that fire and rescue, et cetera, don't have the resources to do. So I think there's, there's a marked difference in Scott Morrison's reaction on this to previous natural disasters. He's learnt the lessons.
1: I think you're absolutely right there. Andrew Clonnell, thank you for your time. Thanks, Peter. Of course, i would make the point here, too. At the moment, the states are very willing to accept the Prime Minister's Office of Army support. We know uh, in the fires, that was a toing and froing point, wasn't it, in New South Wales? All right, let's get the latest now on the floods. Sky News reporter Kenny Heatley is on the ground from McLean in northern New South Wales. Kenny, thank you for your time. Pretty horrific pictures we've been watching, lots of heroism from uh, people and chopper pilots. You've been in the thick of it all day. What's it like on the ground?
7: Hi, Peter. Well, I'm here on the mid-north coast uh, in McLean, and it's on the banks of the Clarence River. As you can see, the, the flooding is major. We've got homes, businesses, cars, extensive farmland underwater. Earlier in the day, I was in Grafton. The, the levee held there by about 30 metres. It was touch and go here through the day in McLean. Uh It was literally by centimetres that, that the levee hold, held, but that doesn't mean that there's not mm. a lot of people that have been affected, and boats have been on the water. You can actually hear them now. They're still going um, but they've been going in and accessing uh, people who have been trapped. The most important thing is is that today it's been mainly dry. There's been bursts of showers coming through but certainly not the torrential rain that we're seeing on the weekend. But here on the mid-north coast it is a very different situation to what is happening further north where the emergency is unfolding minute by minute in places like Lismore.
1: Yeah, well, talk to me about Liz Moore. I, I was sitting at home dry and comfortable with food in my belly after dinner last night, and all I could think about was, was mum's, dad's, husband's wife sitting on their roofs uh, with their kids. Probably their mobile phone has long lost its charge. Nightfall's yep. coming. Uh, they know if the water continues to rise, you know, they've got bugger all chance of survival, hoping they'll be rescued. I just, I just can't fathom what that would have been like. How many people ended up being rescued today?
7: It's frightening and we've, we've got an hour of daylight left and then the rescuing that's been going on all day since first light with helicopters, with boats, with canoes, with jet skis, most of it is going to have to cease for a second night and we still have people who are trapped either in, in their roofs and in their homes or on their roofs. So you can see how frightening that would be and also how dire it is considering that they've been on their roofs for two whole days, mm. probably without food and water, without batteries... Uh, without toilet facilities, probably suffering hypothermia last night as well, and now they're facing another night on their roof too. Now, in terms of numbers, I was talking to the SES about an hour and a half ago, and they were saying every time we think we've got an exact number of how many people need to be rescued, the number changes. And in terms of how many have been rescued, we got a number early in the day from Dominic Perrottet, the Premier, saying that there's been a thousand flood rescues. But in terms of the accounting, I think the SES are just focused on getting as many rescues done as possible and then worrying about the accounting later. later. But I think literally thousands have been rescued so far, if you if you count in all the other people that have been helping out as mm. well. But I just want to read you a couple of posts, because people in Lismore have been communicating through social media in places like um, Facebook groups and... We're heading into our second night, as I was saying, and there's still some desperate people who have family that aren't accounted for. And as we roll some pictures of what's been going on in Lismore, I just want to read a couple. I'm going to leave out names and addresses for obvious reasons, but these were posted today. My cousins and his kids are trapped due to the horrific flooding. They lost power 36 hours ago and are surrounded by water. At this point of time, they have floating vehicles and trees smashing into their house, which is making it very unstable. They also have low battery, which is making it hard to keep in contact. I will gladly give money to help with the trouble to also show my gratitude if someone can help. Also this one, can someone try and get my nan and pop out? We've been trying to get the SES out there. My nan needs medical help. We're calling triple zero. Also this one, please check on... This lady and her dog, I haven't been able to contact her since Sunday. I reported her to the SES last night. Any further information, please help. And this final one I want to read you. Looking for my husband's uncle. The house is underwater. Rescuers banged on the roof with no answer, hoping this means he has been rescued. We have checked all the evacuation centres at least five times throughout the entire day. So, Peter, you can imagine how distressing it is. We're heading to the second night and we've got family members that are still unaccounted for, considering Mm -hmm. the fact that an 80-year-old lady was found dead inside her flooded Lismore home today. So this is the tragedy that is starting to unfold and this emergency situation is, is not ending tonight and will continue for the next couple of days.
1: Thank you for keeping us honest and understanding exactly what's happening there on the ground and uh, where our compassion needs to be tonight, Kenny Heatley. Thank you. Uh, stay safe yourself and I'll speak to you tomorrow night. right, after the break, a former NATO commander reacts to the Russian invasion of Ukraine that he predicted after the break.
2: My name is Manny Karoudis, and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases, which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts.
1: Welcome back. You're watching Credlin. I want to turn now to the continuing Russian invasion of Ukraine. The scenes coming from major Ukrainian cities continues to shock and the bravery of the Ukrainian people is astonishing. However, the current scenes from Ukraine do not come as a surprise to those who have been watching this closely all along, which brings me to my next guest, General Sir Richard Schiriff, a highly distinguished British Army officer. Sir Richard rose to the highest ranks of the British Army over 37 years, serving in the First Gulf War, three tours of Northern Ireland during the Troubles, Kosovo, and Iraq. In 2011, after returning from Iraq, he was promoted as a commander of NATO's Allied Command operation, serving as Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe, one of the highest ranking positions within NATO. In 2017, after retiring from the British Army, Sir Richard published his first book, War with Russia, an urgent warning from senior military, chronicling the rise of Putin's Russia. And based on his time in NATO, The book was framed as a fictional future history, but eerily predicted how war with Russia could erupt and now has. As Russia has invaded, of course, Ukraine, many of his predictions and scenarios are sadly coming true. General Sir Richard Sheriff joins me now live from the United Kingdom. Sir Richard, we really appreciate your time here in Australia. You predicted that Russia would seek to invade a neighbouring country and try to, in part, recreate the old Soviet empire. You also said it wouldn't stop there. Given where we are tonight, what do you think are Putin's plans and goals?
8: Well, firstly, it's good to be with you. Um, This is a nightmare come true. Putin has made it very clear that he's he's looking to see the the re-establishment of a Russian empire. He's he, here's the man who said that the most appropriate security settlement for Eastern Europe is 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 another Yalta. Well, to those who remember the last Yalta, February 1945 treaty between Stalin, Roosevelt, and Churchill, which effectively ceded Eastern Europe to uh, to, to Stalin, uh, that must send us a chill down the brain. And I think this is now all beginning to unfold um, as as we see in this. Uh, appalling act of of of, uh, of violence in Ukraine.
1: Over the past week, we've witnessed incredible bravery of the Ukrainian people holding off this invasion. Uh, but as we go to air tonight, Russian force, forces are building up outside of Kiev, armoured vehicles, tanks, artillery. With so little military support from NATO, I know that there is uh, financial support on its way to buy weapons and other things, but it's not there now. How long will Ukraine be able to hold them off?
8: I, I, I don't know is the answer to that, but what we have to do is absolutely salute the courage and, and inspiring bravery of the Ukrainian defenders. Um, NATO, the, the NATO countries, and of course Australia too, are providing massive support, as much as support as they can, but it's got to be indirect support because direct, direct support, uh, soldiers fighting on the ground alongside Ukrainians or, 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 or an air, air forces in the air um it will will generate World War Three because that means that NATO will be at war with Russia which is precisely the scenario we want to avoid there remains a critical danger of this thing overspilling into NATO territory in which case under Article 5 of the Washington Treaty which brings all member 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 states in to support one attack that would mean war with Russia which is why NATO is building up its forces to try and deter to make a very clear statement to Russia that there can be no further movement uh, out of Ukraine but as far as Ukraine is concerned how long will it survive how long will the fight go on for we pray as long as possible we have to we have to hope for the best and we have to hope that the support mm. that the rest of the world can give Ukraine uh, will ultimately lead to uh Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian success, but it's a long shot.
1: You, you've obviously uh, fought in war zones and you're now a military strategic expert. Give us a sense of how difficult it is or will be for Russia, even though it uh, outmans and outresources the Ukrainian army, to fight in these urban cities. That's not easy, is it?
8: No. And fighting in built-up areas, fighting in cities is is in, incredibly difficult. It sucks up enormous amounts of manpower and personnel. It's very, very heavy on casualties. And I'm afraid we're beginning to see this already now with the attacks on Kharkiv yesterday uh, by artillery fire. And the worry is that as the Russians bog down, and let's be clear, this has not gone the russians way largely because the ukrainians of uh, two things one is because the ukrainians have fought like tigers and secondly because the russians have shown themselves frankly to be pretty incompetent um so as they bog down they're not achieving their objectives as quickly as they want to the worry is and in fact i'm afraid we're seeing it already they will lash out with the indiscriminate use of artillery and other mass munitions uh, resulting in very heavy civ- civilian civilian and, and other casualties
1: some have called Russian President Vladimir Putin a madman. They say this is all hastily coordinated. But as I said in your book, you predicted this sort of escalation in 2017. What warning signs did you see that others didn't?
8: Well, I wasn't alone. I just put it, put it out there in a slightly more lurid fashion than most... Respectable think tankers would, but um, you have to only you go go back to twenty fourteen, the invasion of Crimea. That was the strategic shock, the wake up call. Um, in I mean, the time of time of that, and uh, shortly afterwards, when uh, Crimea was admitted to the Russian Federation, Putin made a speech in the Kremlin in which all the all the sort of issues we're seeing now were laid out he talked about the policy of containment of russia he talked about if you press the spring it will push back he talked about kiev being the mother of city, rather, russian cities he talked about uh, the desire of all of russians to bring all russians under the banner of mother russia uh, it was all there and then we've seen the continued ramp up of military capability we've seen putin putin's um i mean your headline lethal endgame that his lethal approach mm. his lethal attacks you know the sort here are 15 miles from where i'm where i'm living the 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 nerve the nerve agent attack in salisbury um here is a man for whom international rules uh, the rule of law means absolutely nothing and it's all it's it, it was i'm afraid all too predictable so this is genuinely a nightmare coming true
1: just before we go i've got to get your view on his comments over the weekend about nuclear weapons
8: chilling we need to be really worried by that but equally we've got to we, we we must be strong we must not blink um that is typical putin trying to 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 bully to intimidate uh and to to outface the opposition
1: well it's sobering commentary so richard thank you very much for your time there you go. You couldn't get a better expert than that, can you? Right. right, let's move back to the domestic sphere here in Australia. and look at an issue I mentioned first last week, but it hasn't gone away, this growing push on the left for the radical decriminalisation of illicit drugs in Australia. We saw it all start in earnest last week when the leader of the Reason Party in Victoria, Fiona Patton, revealed her intention to push for the decriminalisation of illicit drugs. We're talking heroin, ice, the whole box and dice, in the Victorian Parliament. The next day, Federal Labor MP for Canberra, Alicia Payne, announced that she also strongly supported drug decriminalisation. Now, there's also a push, as you know, inside the Labor Greens-run ACT Legislative Assembly to decriminalise carrying small amounts of hard drugs. It would be very wrong to see these instances over the past couple of weeks as isolated frolics. They're not. They're part of a concerted campaign by the left to end Australia's long-standing prohibition against hard drugs. Federal Minister Zed Seselja said this push is real, it's radical and it's dangerous. He joins me now from Canberra. Uh, Zed, thank you for your time. Ice, heroin, speed, ecstasy, the whole gamut. Huge community harm is caused by these drugs. What does Federal MP for Canberra, the Labor Federal MP Alicia Payne, want to see happen?
4: Uh, well, unfortunately, uh, federal Labor MP Alicia Payne supports the policy that is being pushed, and uh, in the ACT Assembly is on the verge of being uh, put into law um, in the ACT, which is the decriminalisation of ice, of heroin, of cocaine, of MDMA, uh, of all of these hard drugs. Um, which I think common sense will tell you, but also many many experts, including uh, our, the head of The AFP, Rhys Kershaw, will tell you will lead to more violence, it will lead to a more dangerous environment for uh, individuals uh, in family situations. We know that domestic violence increases, we know that uh, there is more risk on our roads, there is more risk for first responders, mm. uh, there are serious mental health issues that go with this. Um, these are really seriously dangerous policies. They're being pushed, as you say, in some parts of the country. You talk about uh, the push in Victoria, certainly in the ACT, it uh, is a strong push. It's already been recommended by a Labor Greens nominated committee, Uh, so it's on the verge of being passed here in the ACT. And unfortunately, Peter, it seems to have some supporters at the federal level and not just Alicia Payne, but the federal Greens have it as part of their policy platform. So you can see how parts of the left, a growing part of the left, it would seem, are pushing for these radical uh, drug law changes.
1: I just point that out to Labor leader Anthony Albanese. He's from the factional left. He took a while to come out and reject the idea. He didn't necessarily reject it outright. He sort of put it to one side and said it's not the agenda. We know in Victoria, though, Daniel Andrews ruled out a heroin injecting room before the 2014 election. As soon as he got elected, he put one in. And now there's another one for the CBD. How can you or, or can we? The question is, can we trust Labor when they say before the election that this is not on the table?
4: Well, you're right to point that out in the Victorian experience. In the ACT, it certainly wasn't on the table. Uh, It was not taken to an election, but it's now being almost certainly uh, likely to be pushed through the ACT Assembly. So uh, you do have to take it. Uh, with a grain of salt, and and Anthony Albanese's statements on it were hardly strong. Uh, You know, he was largely avoiding the issue and giving a very short answer. He certainly wouldn't explain, if he did oppose it, why exactly he would oppose it, because I suspect that deep down and perhaps if we were to go into... All of, his, uh, all of his previous comments, maybe at branch meetings and other places, uh, you know, you, you wouldn't put it past him to have supported it. Now, I don't know that for sure. Uh, maybe, maybe that's not the mm. case. But uh, he certainly didn't come out in a strong way uh, and condemn it. And the fact that uh, some, some on his left are, are pushing for it and are endorsing it, uh, like Alicia Payne, the fact that his mm. likely Greens' partners, if he were in government, are pushing it. I mean, the Greens' federal platform actually talks about the use possession uh, and non-commercial sale of drugs being decriminalised. Now, I assume, I can only assume that that means sort of low-level drug dealing uh, being completely decriminalised. And, Peter, the problem with this, as Rhys Kershaw points out, is it absolutely empowers organised crime. Um, and, and, you know, we, we see in other countries in Europe where we've seen uh, this kind of thing happen, narco-tourism happening, uh, where people are crossing borders mm-hmm. in order to use drugs, and you see it's an absolute magnet for organised crime. And that's what I fear would happen uh, in Canberra, but I think uh, the, the problems go well beyond Canberra and they could spread nationally.
1: Well, Minister Seselja, all credit to you for exposing this and keeping the pressure up on what is a coordinated push. This is not outliers, as I said. Thank you for your time. And of course, you know what happens on the left. They want one state or territory to fall in line with a radical social agenda and they'll use that as template legislation. We've seen it on many other issues and they'll use it as template legislation across the country. Let's go to another issue. Two weeks ago, I brought you the news the Victorian government had announced yet another news tax on housing in the state. Of course, they didn't call it a tax at the time. They called it a social and unaffordable Housing Contribution. This is Orwellian BS, isn't it? A 1.75% levy on all new developments and dwellings. It's a tax in anyone's language. And it would have added up to $20,000 to the cost of a new home in Victoria. That's on top of all the other taxes that already hurt. Stamp duty, land tax, you know them all. The Andrews government claimed the tax would raise $800 billion and that they would then use this money to support the construction of extra social housing, For people on welfare. Almost immediately the tax was held down. Coming out of six lockdowns with business on its knees, the last thing Victorians needed was a new tax. So there was a coalition built of local councils, property developers, the unions and the construction industry all demanding that Daniel Andrews axe this tax. Now let's be very clear, it's not the job of people who have saved hard to buy their new home. It's not their job to pay for social housing. That's the job of a government that completely manages the budget. It doesn't waste money on things like $30 million contracts to dodgy private security companies to run hotel quarantine and more. The reality is Victoria is drowning in debt. And the Labor government has made promises left, right and centre to buy votes in the November election and now doesn't know how they're going to pay for it all. Thankfully, at least, it won't be new home buyers and those getting into the market for the first time. But the question remains... Who now are they going to try and tax? After the break, two of our nation's finest thinkers we'll talk about energy too. very interesting idea from Judith Sloan today after the break Joining me now, as they do every Tuesday, two of Australia's greatest intellects from Adelaide, columnist for the Australian Dr Jennifer Oriel and from Mullally in New South Wales, former Deputy Prime Minister John Anderson. John, I'll start with you if I can. A brilliant piece today by Tony Abbott in The Wall Street Journal. Followed in the Australian by Adam Crichton. Abbott talked about the West being indolent and too woke, and that we've got to really have a wake-up call coming out of Ukraine. Adam talked about the climate change obsessions shifting the West's focus from things like, uh, you know, better resourcing up NATO. Um, You know, I am hoping that there is a silver lining coming out of Ukraine. That we will be awake now, not woke, but awake to these events in Europe and, and particularly Asia, and that we will put uh, intellectual effort but also uh, budgetary resources into making ourselves stronger, not weaker.
2: Uh, Peter, I absolutely agree with you on those hopes. But let's, to get to the good news, work our way through the really bad news first. Wokery splatters on the first impact with a steel turret of an aggressor's tank. Let's be realistic about that. We've now got a psychopathic killer in the form of a national leader, Putin, who will stop at nothing, sacrifice millions of lives to save his own. The likely outcome is that despite the bravery of the Ukrainians, and we should all be inspired by that, a sovereign nation will be destroyed. Mm. We will have a new Cold War, and the leader of the free world's presidency teeters on the edge his credibility may be shot at a time when we need leadership. Yes, we have been eating ourselves out from within, both socially and economically. Frank Ferrudi from Kent University, he spends a lot of time in Australia, wrote a fascinating piece a little while ago in which he said he pointed to the fact that our kids are subjected to a constant barrage of reinvention of history, telling them that they are the inheritors of a nightmarish culture. You see, when you're de-statute, When you want to move Australia Day, it looks like an attack on history, but it's not. It's an attack on our kids' culture, on our culture. And no wonder, increasingly, we don't think we ought to defend our own culture. So that's problem number one, which I think Tony Abbott was absolutely right about. And Adam Crichton is plainly right. We have weakened ourselves economically. And if you take energy, Obama and Trump oversaw a massive expansion uh, of um, gas and oil reserves in America, so that America became self sufficient, then started exporting. The price of fuel collapsed so much, the Middle East mm-hmm. tried to ruin the business model by overproduction to break the American model. Biden comes to power, mm-hmm. does a whole lot of extraordinary things in the name of climate change. Uh, he enriches Putin, puts money in his bank account. What use is sent, you know, at the same time as we we're talking about sanctions, this is nuts. And if you're a deep green and you're really converted to the worry about climate change, can I say this? If you empower the authoritarians in this world, if you break the balance, if we go over the edge, do you really think those people are going to care about climate change? Climate change concerns and advances depend on the liberal global order the rules-based system staying in place. There's something for the Greens to think about. Because they're anti Well, Jennifer,
1: I mean, I was... Uh... Jennifer, I was shocked by John Kerry's comments that he was concerned that the focus of the world on Ukraine would distract from their focus on climate change. He seemed more worried about the emissions impacting children of future decades than the children of Ukraine today.
6: What's your views? I just think that, that, like most sanctimonious green liberals, you know, John Kerry wants to save the earth but is not prepared to take out the trash, in this case, Vladimir Putin. I mean, the, the, the notion that uh, Vladimir Putin's troops care about the tundra melting is, is quite uh, delusional. And John Kerry is, is fanciful. I mean, one of the things he said in, in his uh, remarks was he wanted to keep Russia on track with emissions. I don't know what that means. Russia is on track to increase its emissions, according to its own targets, by up to 40% by 2035. Uh, It has signed all of the protocols and observes none of them. And I would think that the main concern at this point is probably nuclear emissions, not carbon emissions. Uh, Perhaps John Kerry needs to go and see what's happening on the ground in Ukraine to really understand the priorities here. The order of priority is not chatting to Putin about tundras melting, It's, it's looking at what we can do to stop him and to make sure that we're Mm. not compromised because of an over-aggressive approach to climate change targets.
1: Well, the woke of the world are not making money out of uh, war in Ukraine like they're making money out of renewable energy and other things. Uh, We know it's two weeks now since they announced the early closure of Yeraring. This is Origin Energy. Kicked off this whole debate about our energy security. New South Wales will lose 20% of its energy supply and thousands of jobs uh, when Yeraring is closed. We know that Mike Cannon-Brooks tried to buy AGL with the intent purpose of shutting it down sooner rather than later I'm going to talk again to the Lake Macquarie Mayor Kay Fraser about all of this, but in The Australian today, the economist Judith Sloan, uh, John, made an intriguing suggestion asking whether, or posing the question, Australia's electricity supply, she said, it's too important, isn't it, to be left in the hands of private players. Do taxpayers need to take back these essential assets, do you think?
2: Uh, Let's just establish two, two very important principles here. Firstly, It hasn't been left for the private players. The government has been a massive intervener for a long time, pursuing all sorts of objectives. So our energy markets are not working on free market principles anyway. Point one leads into the point two. The primary purpose of the Commonwealth Government of Australia is the security and safety of the Australian people. Uh, Whatever steps are necessary to ensure our energy security and affordability in the future will be vital as we confront a very dangerous new Cold War.
6: Jennifer? Well, I think we also need to talk about what happens when you uh, transition too quickly to renewable energies. I think it was the Royal United Services Institute um, wrote a really excellent paper on this about the risks inherent in transitioning too quickly and there are a lot of cyber risks in the in the networks um, when you transition too quickly so it's it's not only about not having fuel supply not having fuel reserves it's also about the vulnerabilities in the in the different points in the networks of, um, of a renewable sector a renewable system that we really need to be cognizant of and i think probably governments need to consider whether they're going to tie this into legislation to make sure things we are safe while we are tra- making that transition at a pace that ensures we are secure as a nation, as a sovereign nation.
1: Jennifer and John, thank you as always. I think I'm with uh, John and Judith Sloan to say there's no market here anymore, so maybe the government needs to step in and put it back in the people's favour. Or right, after the break, as I said, the Mayor of Lake Macquarie, I don't know, the Treasurer in the New South Wales Parliament didn't know how many jobs are being lost. What's she got to say about that after the break? When the news broke last week that Australia's largest coal-fired power station would close seven years early, I spoke to the local mayor, Kay Fraser, about her plan to help its workers and their families. And I was taken aback to hear then that neither the owner, Origin Energy, or the New South Wales Energy Minister, also the Treasurer, Matt Keane, had bothered to make contact with her. Despite both of these men discussing the issue of closure behind closed doors for many months... I said I wanted to have her back on to keep pressure on this issue for her local workers and her community. I'm delighted to say Kay joins me now from Lake Macquarie. Kay, we've now heard, or you've now heard from Origin Energy. What sort of plan do they have to protect these jobs and are they fair income?
5: Yeah, hi, Peter. And it is year, it, it is day 12 now since uh, the announcement of the closure and I have met with Origin Energy. I met with the General Manager of Energy Supply and uh, Government Relations and they spoke about um, the jobs, maybe relocation of some of those positions. Talking about uh, some of the workers might be able to work, or you know, from home. So there's a whole range of issues that they talked about. But um, I'm still concerned about the loss of those jobs and what that will mean.
1: What about Matt Keane? The Treasurer was grilled in the New South Wales Parliament yesterday, and he was forced to admit that he didn't know how many jobs were at risk. Um, That would astound the people of Lake Macquarie, I assume.
5: Yes, absolutely. So we know exactly how many jobs uh, are lost at this stage, but um, I'm meeting with the minister tomorrow afternoon. So I'm looking forward to that. And I'm also meeting, uh, meeting with the CEO of Origin Energy on Friday so that's really positive Uh, i also had a mayoral minute that went to a council meeting and uh, it was unanimously passed to uh, call on the state government and origin energy to uh, make sure that there's no job losses um, there's no environmental impact and obviously the security of energy because they're the most important things to us as a community
1: Yeah, look, I grew up in in a small country town in the Mallee and when um, big employers leave town, it has a devastating impact. It affects the morale of not just that town but the local outlying area. What's been the mood like in Lake Macquarie?
5: Well, obviously it's a little bit sombre around Arari. All those workers out there are unsure what will happen to them. So the important thing for us as a community is to obviously set up a local jobs task force. And that's what I'll be asking for. And I'll be wanting the um, Origin Energy to be involved in that. Obviously the state government elected representatives the University of Newcastle and TAFE to look at those jobs and to actually have a plan and a task force to look at how we're going to work our way through this plan. At this stage, uh, there's no plan, and I want to make sure that we're on the front foot. We've got less than three years, so it's critical, and we need to make sure that we can turn the lights on, like you said, but also we, we keep those jobs in Lake Macquarie and we have a plan. I
1: tell you what... Kay, we will stay across this issue. Please come back and talk to us uh, after you've had these meetings. Let's keep them honest. Uh, We know that it was a success story um, in Newcastle when they pivoted and changed the focus of the community. It can be done. Let's hope it happens. Thank you for your time. There you go. We'll stay right across that issue. Thank you for your company tonight. As always, I'll be back tomorrow night at six.